Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome along to the Rocky Road Rewind. I'm Kevin Byrne and I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by the former world champion, Dave Boy McCauley. Dave Boy, welcome to the show. How are you doing, Kevin? Not too bad now on yourself. Keeping good. Oh, I, I can't complain. As long as, you're, as long as you're above the ground, you're okay. On today's episode, Dave Boy, we're going to focus on a bout that took place in June 1989 at Wembley Arena, when at the third time of asking, you became world champion taking the IBF World Flyweight title from Duke McKenzie. Great memories, I'm sure. Yeah, well, how that fight came about, uh, I'd fought twice for the uh, World title against Fidel Bassa and lost twice. And the way the way we put it to Mickey Duff, uh, BJ Eastwood, who was my, my, my manager at that time, or my promoter at that time, he, went, he flew across to London and negotiated a... Uh, a contract with Mickey Duff for myself and Duke McKenzie to fight for Duke McKenzie to make his, I don't know, second or third defense against me. But we put it to Mickey Duff that uh, this was my last fight. I only needed one more fight and I was going to retire. I needed needed a few quid just to to, uh, to keep me going for a few months while or for a couple of years until I get a job. But we put it to him that I I was for retiring and it was was my last fight and, you know, I just, uh, just wanted a payday. So, I'm not saying we knew we could beat McKenzie at this stage, but we had a because of his style and the way he fought, and we 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 had studied him for for you know for months. Uh, like we we had a we had an idea that uh, there was well, we had an idea that there was a real good chance you know, that I could beat him because his style his style suited me. But we told Mickey Duff, uh, otherwise we said, look, this guy, this he wants this one last fight and then. He's a uh, he's for packing boxing in because you know he's come near the, the end of their own. So they actually signed they actually uh, signed for the fight and uh, and so uh, I hopped into the ring and uh, I forget when it was was it March or June? I just forget what, what month. June what month? the seventh. June, June the seventh. Yeah. It was uh, eight days before my twenty ninth birthday. Twenty eighth birthday. And uh, anyway. So I hopped into the ring and the bell went for the first round. And uh, the first round, this is how fights change. Uh, I caught him with with a with a fantastic body shot, 
in the first round because when I hit him with the body, all he was, and then he, he, tra- you know, he, he traveled backwards, you know, uh, and, and started to go into, uh, go into revert into a shell. He, you know, he, he just sort of was on the uh, defensive all the time. And that one punch, which was in the first round, changed the whole outcome of the fight. Because he realized then that I was in a position where he where he knew that if I hit him to the head or to the body, I could knock him out. Yeah. And he, he felt that the part that I had. And, and, and that one punch, as I said, it, it just changed the whole way the fight was to be fought. And from the first round on, like, I dominated like, most of the rounds. Like, uh, so let's take a record scratch and you've taken in the first in the first round, you've hit Duke McKenzie, a left hook to the body, and followed up with a couple more. And all of a sudden the champion is realizing he's in against something different. And let's just pause and hold the listeners in suspense there at that point and bring it back to how you began as a boxer and to to why you were something different um than maybe Duke McKenzie was expecting, because he did take it lightly, but you know, little did he know what he was up against at that time. Yeah. Like I see, I see your amateur career. You were used to winning and losing. Like you lost the 79 senior final, won the 1980 senior final, lost again in 81. You were used to ups and downs from way early in your career. Yeah. But how my amateur career started off there, there's, there, I have three brothers and, uh, the two eldest guys, Dolan and Martin, uh, they uh, went. They uh, joined a, an amateur boxing club, and uh, and I decided I wanted to join it too. And, it, and they ended up like Martin and Dolan weren't too good at it, but I seemed to be like a, like a natural dude from a, from an early from an early age. I joined when I was eight, but we and I fought in the Down and Connor Championships when I was nine, and you had to be eleven to do it. But I went in under my elder brother Martin. I went in, in under his his birth certificate. That's why for years, when it come to the to the to the Jake me leaving the juniors, they thought that I should have been. You know, that's when they found out that I had no way. <laughs> when I had an, I had the down in corners and, and an elder brother's uh, birth certificate. And uh, I've heard about lads joining the war, the war effort to, uh, by faking their birth certificates, but never to never to go into war in the ring. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, what happened was. I fought in the Down and Connor finals against a guy called Hugh Russell. Remember Hugh Russell? It was a, yeah, was a little a cute. Yeah, a little red. And a little red, yeah. And uh, he, he had beaten me and uh, it was a really big occasion for me because I was only nine years of age. <laughs> and she was 11 or 12. And uh, I could have been maybe 10 at that stage, but uh, it was a really big, 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 big undertaking. And I remember then uh, uh, the following week in, 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 in Mass, they had a... A big, we, we had the, the, the Sunday bulletin every week and the, there was a big thing in it about how I'd fought and all and uh, you know it was my first sort of time of getting publicity but it was it was it was at mass but it was in the bulletin and uh, they'd given me great praise they had and, and it, was very, it was very unusual to get things they got in a bulletin you know, on a Sunday you know uh, but uh, talking about major major stuff oh I, and from then on and uh, I I uh, I stuck that amateur game for you and, and, and won. I, I forget what age I was when I won my first. Uh, I won the All Ireland Juniors. I think it was around maybe I was fifteen or six. I can't remember. The Down and Corner Championships. That was the last year they they, they they were. After that, there was no more Down Down and Corners. But the amateur game, like, I I was only like, ever ever really only half hearted. I never really uh, I, I didn't knuckle down as an amateur. Uh, I didn't train the way uh, other amateurs trained, you know, and I actually smoked in those days. 
And uh, and I actually be, I remember being in the uh, when I was fighting in the All Ireland's All Ireland Juniors. Uh, I think it was Jim McCord was with me. Actually, I was smoked in the in, you know, in the change room. I was never a heavy smoker. Maybe maybe smoked maybe four or five cigarettes a day, but that would that, that would have been it. But uh, Jim McCord was a smoker as well, wasn't he? I think. Jim was a Jim, yeah. Jim McCord smoked too. Yeah, he did. I but uh, like, I never really the only. When I started to take amateur boxing seriously, it was when uh, I first left the uh, St. Boxing Club in Larne. And that's when I won my first uh, All-Ireland Junior title. And that was with Jim McCourt and Sean Canavan, who was a, who was a part of that club too. And uh, I won the All-Ireland Juniors. I won the, I won the Ulster Juniors, the All-Ireland Juniors. And then I won the, the Ulster Seniors. And then I won the, the All-Ireland Seniors. And the guy who I took the title of, I think it was, uh, Jimmy Carson, correct, yeah, yeah, and, I, and also fought Sammy McDermott. I can't remember if I had beaten Sammy McDermott. Sammy McDermott was a, he was from from the south. Sammy, never can you remember him? I think you lost. Is it uh, Sean McDermott or Sammy McDermott? You lost Sammy to him in, in seventy nine, and then beat yeah. Jimmy Carson in eighty before yeah. facing Hugh Russell in eighty one. Yeah, I, that's right. I Hugh Russell. Did I did I fight Hugh Russell in eighty one? Did I? Yeah. Think so. I can't remember that, Nick. I must have come. I know. I, I knew I fought him as. A, it's, it's only forty years ago. <laughs> so that was twice he had beaten me. Then. Well, and the down and corner finals, and then obviously in the uh, the All Irelands. But uh, what happened then? Like I had a pretty productive. Uh, what the reason why I retired from amateur boxing was we. What happened was we went to the European Championship, the Junior European Championships in Italy. And I fought a guy, a Hungarian guy, I forget his name, but he was very, 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 very good. And he went on to win the gold medal in the in, in the European Juniors, you see. So and our, our fight got the fight of the uh, of the championships. But Felix Jones said to me, he was the uh, he was a top man in the Irish Amateur Box. Felix Jones said to me, Macaulay, you've booked your ticket to the Olympic Games. I think I must be Moscow Olympics in nineteen eighty. So I was waiting for to get called up to go and train, and it didn't happen. They sent Hugh Russell to my place. And when I had found this out, when the Irish team had been picked, and I hadn't been one of the guys that was going, I, I retired from amateur boxing in disgust because I had fought in the Europeans, and I, the guy who had beaten me in the European Championships went on to, beat, to win the gold medal. I have his name here. It's Janos Varadi. Yeah. And that's Ferrari. I think the fight was probably the fight was a really exceptional fight. There was knockdowns and stuff, and it was a really hard fight. But uh, when Felix Jones, he he was the head man of the Irish Amateur Boxing Association, and he said to me, coming out when we were coming home from uh, from Italy, he said to me, Macaulay, you've now booked your ticket for the Olympic Games in Moscow. And I said, right, okay. And uh, and then when I found out I wasn't going, that's when I retired and, and, and discussed. Because I was the All Ireland uh, flyweight champion, and as I said, I give a good account of myself uh, in the European Championships. And I think I'm not sure if it was before or after. I we went to America, Ireland via America. I can't remember if it was 1979 or if it was before the All If it was before the the the. Uh, European Championships. I can't remember. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can bring it up there. But I went to America and I beat the American number one and the American number two. And uh, I, I think it was then 
I, I can't remember now because I don't know what came first, the European Championships or the fights in America. I can't remember. Obviously, can't remember it was, it was a guy, Mike Perez, you beat, I think. And um, it was 19, March 29th, 1980 at Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg. Yeah. I think we had actually two fights. Um. Yeah, I can't. I can't find the other one though. I did look earlier on, and I only saw. I only saw the one, so that's the only one I could. I could find a record yeah. for. But so the the uh, the bout with the USA took place in March 1980, and the European Junior Championships were May 1980. So about two months in between them. So what came first, or did you say? Uh, the trip to the USA. Yeah. Well, after the uh, the the European Championships, then. Uh, Felix Jones had said to me, uh, Dave, boy, you've now, you've now booked your ticket for the Olympic Games. This is right, okay. And once I found out I wasn't going, that's when I retired uh, as an amateur in disgust because it's every amateur's dream, you know, to, to go to the Olympic Games. And uh, and I always thought, Hugh Russell got a bronze medal in those days. Uh, 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 he did very, 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 very well. I, I can't take anything away from him. Mm. But even though he had beaten me twice as, as an amateur, I always thought I I would have had the edge on you, and I proved that whenever we were when we were professionals because I used to spar him, and when I sparred you, I always had the upper hand. Every you know, and, uh, every spar we had, Hugh always come out with the ring the worst. Yeah. And, uh, and in the amateur boxing days, I just thought sometimes. The, the the fights just weren't fairly judged, you know, and uh, and I always maintained to myself if Hugh Russell got a, a bronze medal in those Olympic games at that stage, I reckon I could have got gotten that or maybe even a wee bit more. I I don't know, but it's all hypothetical. But that's why I retired from the amateur boxing game. When you have the top man telling you, yeah. Felix Jones, that you're getting in, that you're you're going to the Moscow Olympics, and then you're waiting to be called up to go to the training camp, and nothing happens. Then you find out that the team's being picked and they're going to the training camp and I'm not part of it. I just said, right, that's me finished. I'm yeah. disgusted. I just I thought the move they pulled on me, and I, I didn't know for a long time who, 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 did, who, who pulled that move, but I did find out eventually who uh, pulled that, you know, uh, made sure that, that I didn't go. I'm not mentioning his name, but uh, I was disgusted. And, uh, and the guy who... who uh, Said it that Hugh Russell was going and I was going. I just have no time for him at all now, you know. And I just thought what they did to me was dirty, you know, just wasn't right. Yeah. You know, and they, I mean, they, they sort of nearly overruled the top man in amateur boxing game. The, the president that was uh, Felix Jones. And when he says you're going, bit of horse trading. Yeah, it's a story I'm massively familiar with in amateur boxing. There's a lot of fighters have been kind of edged out for political reasons or whatever. And you're you're not the first. You won't be the last. You're no, definitely not I mean, the last. It's very, but it's, it's it doesn't make it any yeah. It doesn't make it any easier to accept no, what happens to you. At the time, it was devastating because at that time, professional boxing wasn't you know, wasn't a big thing in there in, in, in those days until McGuigan came. It wasn't even big even in McGuigan's day at the start. You know there was there was no. I don't think there was any professional boxers in Ireland at that time. Like McGuigan and Hugh Russell were the only two. But the fact was though. The reason why I turned professional then was I had no great ambitions. I hadn't fought for maybe as an amateur I think for three or four years, and uh, and then Hugh Russell he he turned professional, and he actually won uh, a British title, and I was working in, in Clarit Power Station at this stage, and uh, I think it was twenty one. I think it was about twenty one at the time, 
and the hero won the British title, which was a big thing uh, in, in boxing. And I thought, Jesus, I said, Jesus, if he can win a British title, there's no reason why I couldn't. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so then I approached uh, Jim McCourt, my old amateur trainer. I, I, I said to Jim, I want to turn pro here, but I want you to train me. Jim was such an amateur. He says, no, he says, uh, he says I want nothing to do. Well, I can't remember his exact words, but he didn't He, he didn't want to. I trained it on his club, up in the Snaggles club at the start of my professional career. And I wanted to spar. I, I said to Jim, look, I was sparring with the amateurs that I sparred with when I was an amateur, when I just turned pro. I says, Jim, look, I want to get down here to, to the professional gym and I want to start and spar professionals. I said, I want you to take me down. And uh, Jim says, no, I'm not going down there. I said, but the only way for me to improve, I says, I'm sparring guys here right now. I was sparring as an amateur. I says, I was better than them as an amateur. And I, I says, I need, I need, and I need uh, tougher. And I says, I need to be fighting or sparring with professionals so as I can learn the game properly. So if you don't come with this, I'm going down on my own. That's when we sort of part of company. And I went down into the Eastwood stable and I uh, started to train in there. And that's when I started to spar Huey Russell as uh, I was his sparring partner. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't sparred competitively you know, with uh, any, anybody of that calibre for years. And at the start now, Huey used to punish me. <laughs> And then, but as I improved and I got better over the months and over the years, then I started the, you know, the tables turned. And then I started to, pun, to punish you and uh, Huey. And uh, when that started to happen, and I started to improve. I think I wasn't really being schooled at this stage. They, they were, they were Roy Webb was he, he trained in the same gym. Uh, he was uh, training with us and Hugh Russell, but I was way down the pecking order. Uh, like these guys were being groomed you know for great things and, and I wasn't I just was was uh, like, like an onlooker but uh, what how, how my how everything turned around for me was uh, I was fighting a guy for uh, a British title final fight eliminator and Roy Webb was fighting a guy uh, a Welsh fella for a British title fight eliminator so what happened was his guy weighed in overweight at the weigh-ins and so for TV, and my fight wasn't going on TV. And because Roy Webb's title fight become a non-title fight because his opponent weighed way weighed too, too, too heavy on the scales, that fight that was downgraded and my fight that was upgraded to mm. the fight they're going to have on TV because they needed a title fight because that's what it was being built as. And I fought a guy called... Uh, uh, Bobby McDermott. Would that be right? No, it was... Uh, Charlie Brown at the Ulster Charlie Hall. Charlie Brown, that's him. And I knocked Charlie out in the first round. And then that's when TV then became interested in me. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just prior to that, um, you found yourself uh, boxing. So you, you obviously, you made your professional debut in uh, October 1983 on a Barry McGuigan bill. And boxing was beginning to get a bit of a boost. Uh, you fought to a draw on that occasion, but um, but that you really... me. yeah, yeah, that's right. That was Is my it... first, my first, uh, my first uh, professional fight, Jumbo Wami. I got a draw, and and what I said was, if I don't win the next fight, so I'm packing all this in. <laughs> and I forget who the next fight was against. I can't remember. Uh, Dave Smith. Dave Smith. Uh, an English guy, yeah, and uh, I think actually there was the, I think I actually knocked him out. You did first round, yeah, yeah, and uh, and after that, there then I just things just started you know, to fall in the line for me, you know. And uh, June eighty five, June eighty five, Dave, boy, you find yourself boxing on Loftus Road against Bobby McDermott, ten rounds, like one of the most famous boxing occasions up to that point. Uh, you know, a worldwide event as Barry McGuigan took on Eusebio Pedroza. What was that? What was that experience like for you to be involved in? Oh, it was it was crazy. I mean, it was it was a really, really, really big, big, big event. And uh, I was the chief. I was the, the chief supporting bout. Yeah. And uh, I thought your guy Bobby. I actually had broken my left hand in the third round. I actually fought that that fight uh, from the third round on with just my right hand there. And the and the other occasion. Uh, sometimes you you can overcome the pain, and uh, and when you when you get that stage, then I had a hit with a left hook, and then bang, the pain just you know, went back to, to the way it was to start. But I was in so much pain. I said to, to BJ, I I can actually feel my hands swelling up in the glove. I said I was really, 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 really sore. I mean, it was I was agony. I said I'm going to have, you're, you're going to have to pull me. I said this. I'm in so much pain. He said no. Keep going, keep going, keep going. And I kept going and kept going. Then I eventually I knocked him out in the tenth round. But I mean I was I was very, 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 very lucky because my hand was so sore. In fact, it had swollen up so badly. They had to cut my glove off and and and, and cut my body. I mean it was the pain I was in was on. I actually had two breaks in it. Wow. And it took me out, took me out I think, for two months. But, but if it hadn't been for BJ in my corner, BJ said in my corner, no, no, keep going, that you're fine. Yeah, I was still actually maybe winning on points, but uh, but the pain was was unbearable. I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget the pain. It was just on, it was excruciating. I mean, it was really, 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 really sore. But uh, if it hadn't been for BJ being in my corner and make you know making me stay, I would have packed in. 
I couldn't bear this pain. And did the uh, did the pro Irish crowd in the uh, in the ground, the football ground that night, kind of maybe partly drive you on, or did it? It was it. You, what happens, Kevin, is that even though it's good to have all the fans there and everything else, you try to put the noise and all behind you. Like when I fought in the Ulster Hall, it's a small place, holds two thousand, I think. And then yeah, if even the, yeah. the balconies are sort of just overlooking the ring, you you, you can literally nearly. Touch the players, if you know what I mean. That's how close it seems. Yeah. You can hear, you can hear every comment that they make. Uh, I remember one time I thought uh, it was David George that was fighting. I think he was a former British champion of some sort, or he had fought for the British team on a couple of occasions. It was a real big step up in class for me. And uh, nothing happened in the first round. Very little happened in the second round. And in uh, the third round, can I use the F word in here? Maybe you, maybe you can delete it. Lash it in, go for it. This is this is exactly what happened. There's some guy, some guy shooting from the balcony. For fuck's sake, Dave boy, it's fucking, it's uh, it's Dave George fight, not fucking boy George. Hit him. <laughs> yeah, and a culture crowd up in Belfast. And your man looked at me, and I looked at him, and he sort of smiled, and he sort of smiled, and then bang, that's when then when we went to war, you know, and there was all God bless the thunder up. I'll never forget that. You know, that yeah. guy said, for fuck's sake, Dave, boy. It's fucking Dave George are fighting, not boy George. You always, get, you always get good ringside chance in Belfast. Oh, like, great you see the Belfast, but you always, get some, yeah. you always get, some, you get some good wit. I remember Jamie Conlon had a pretty entertaining fight, and for his next one, he became the Mexican. So he came out to the ring in the the Mexican garb, like looking from a ba- looking like a bandit in a Clint Eastwood movie, and he had the he had the sombrero on, and he's throwing a punch in the first round, and it's, it was after a main event, possibly a Frampton fight, and one of the boys goes, "Hit him with the guacamole, Jamie." <laughs> I, was, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's some comedians up in the audience say, "I mean, it's unreal," yeah. and 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 they also hold because it's small and compact. You can hear every you can hear every word of it. When I was in my early stages of boxing, you'd heard a guy saying, jab, jab, jab. And the next thing is, you would listen sometimes to what they're saying. So you would jab. The next thing is, bang, you caught with a big left hook or a, or a big right hand. So you, therefore, you just, you learn to ignore yeah. what the, the, the crowd are saying. Because I did it on one or two occasions. And when you, when you do what the crowd are telling you to do, uh, when you're in a small arena, they got, and, they, and they're shouting, jab, 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 jab. And you do that. As I say, bang, you got a bigger say, right? Yeah. That's it, finished. No more listen to the crowd. No, that, that, drives me nuts. that, drives, that drives me nuts at a, at a fight, actually, because what do what the people in the crowd expect the fighter to listen? And now maybe you're saying that sometimes the fighter does listen, but, yeah, but I'm not uh, sure what they're expecting. In a, in, a, in a small arena, I mean, you can hear like, every every word more or less that they're saying to you. And, uh, and sometimes, as I say, which you shouldn't do, and I would learn after getting caught maybe with one or two hard, good hard shots. You say whatever the crowd's shouting, do this, do that. You just ignore it, like you. But what you're trying to do when you're when you're in the arena, you try to block out all the noise. And you, you're there to you're there to concentrate on you on the job and and the and the guys in front. You, you can't have any distractions. And what I when I listen to the crowd, this is why I was in the early part of my career. But uh, you, you you live and you learn. But uh, you take no notice of what they're shouting. I mean, if they're shouting, trying to give you tips on what they do or, or what they throw, you just ignore all that because you can end up you know, getting knocked out or, or doing their own thing. But uh, as they say, you live and learn after you get hit a few times and it hurts. 
it, BJ Ace would seem to have a good way of doing a, uh, of bringing along a production line. So when one of his fighters maybe lost or fell from the from, fell from the limelight, another was kind of ready and groomed to step o- step in and take over. So you had the kind of the the kind of Barry McGuigan Cruz fight. You'd come along on a few of his undercards. Clearly, we said you know you fought on his day you you fought on his card on your debut, um, you did at Loftus Road, and then you know he loses to Cruz, and a couple of months later you fight for the British title, and in your next fight, then your headline at the King's Hall against Fidel Bassa, Every, everything changes and you kind of step up to becoming one of the main men and you've got a, a feared, a, a, cha- a world champion coming over from South America to take you on main event, King's Hall and all the pressure that goes with it. It was, I mean, the pressure that uh, Kevin is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a big step going from uh, just winning the, the, the British side and the fighting for a world title. I only had, I think I had, I fought for the world title in my either my thirteenth or my fourteenth fight. Like in boxing terms, I just was a baby. If, if you know, if you know, know what I mean. Like people don't fight for a world title until their twenty fifth or their thirtieth fight. I think it was my fourteenth, either my thirteenth fight or my fourteenth. I think fight you had eleven eleven wins and two draws, Dave boy, at that stage. So I'd fought for the for the world title in my fourteenth fight. Yeah. It was a real big, 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 big step. I mean, it, re- it was a, it was a massive step for me. But uh, I, I didn't know if I would be capable of winning the world title. I, I didn't go into that world title fight, the first world title fight, using with confidence. And what I had said to myself was, a boxer's nightmare is being knocked out in the first round. And I said to myself, as long as I don't get knocked out in the first round, I'll be fine. I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll be able to hold my head up high. But what happened to me in the first round, bang, didn't I get put down in the first round? Now, my ass hits a canvas. And I was sitting there, I think it was pretty much, you know, I don't know if it was midway through the first round or you know, I didn't know how long was left in the round. Here's me, Jesus. Now, I was one of these guys who was blessed with a very, very, very quick recovery rate. I got put down, but as soon as my ass hit the canvas, my head was clear. But I can remember that time he put me down, and uh, I'm sitting there on the canvas. The referee starts his count, and I said, Jesus Christ, am I going to get get knocked out here in the first round? My head was clear at this stage, and I got up and fought, and I survived that round. But that was my biggest fear. Was it losing? Was it just losing in general? Was it losing the world title shot or was it kind of humiliation and slagging and not being able to show your face with a first round knockout? What was what was the big thing? First round knockout, uh, Kevin would be very sort of, be, be very embarrassing. Yeah. Very, I mean, the, being knocked out in the first round is every fighter's nightmare. I know it can happen to anybody. You can walk onto a haymaker, bang, and, it's, and it's, if the punch is being thrown hard enough, it's good night. But that would be any fighter's worst fear, going out there and, uh, and, and and being knocked out in the first round. But people weren't expecting me to win. And and, and being knocked out in the first round, they probably say, oh, well, sure, it was too inexperienced. Uh, uh, it, was, it was inevitable that could have happened. But that's your worst, it's your worst fear that even when you become world champion, your your fear is getting knocked out. Because when you're fighting world-class fighters, they all can punch. Yeah, there's very few world class fighters that can't punch, and I remember fighting when I fought uh, Rodolfo Blanco the, the first time, and uh, he was a very powerful puncher, and uh, I can remember some of his punches. But he was hitting me in the shoulders there like before he put me down in that fight. I could feel the part he had because the punches that were whizzing by my jaw, you, you just kind of feel the part. Yeah. Punches are hitting you in the arms. You see, Jesus. 
you know, it's like giving you a dead arm. You know, yeah, no thanks. And that's and that's why every fighter's fear is is is, is getting knocked out in the first. Like, especially the first round, nobody wants to get knocked out at all. Like, but especially the first round, <laughs> as long as you get by the first round, you're okay. But I was a very slow starter, like, even in the amateur game. When like I was only getting going going in the third round, and the fight was over. Like I, I was I was always a slow. St- the amateur game never stood at me because I normally lost the first two rounds. Because in the third round I'm only getting going, and then the fight's over. Yeah. I can remember fighting. I remember, I remember fighting Roy Webb and the Ulster seniors, and uh, he had won the first two rounds. Uh, so he had, but in the third round I was coming on very, 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 very strong, and he was getting very, 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 very tired. Now, I, I knew if I had, if I had won, he won that fight in points. But I knew if I had one more round at him. I would have knocked them out. Yeah, game up. But, yeah, because he was. I've he was seen a lot of guys. I've seen a lot of guys in amateur fights just build up the lead and then literally hold for the entire third round, and they have to be nearly walked to their corner. But they've won the yeah. fight, and you know it's. I suppose it's all playing the game, and we will discuss uh, for any listeners the Bassa fights one and two in greater detail in the future. That's the hope. And um, but you really showed crazy resilience in that fight you know to go from getting knocked down in the first round to nearly winning by knocking out your knocking uh, Fidel Bass out yourself in that ninth round in the ninth round the ninth round he, he had me on the ropes in the ninth round and he was hitting me and he, he was a very 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 tough hard puncher Fidel Bassa and he was hitting me and he had me trapped on the ropes and he was putting me under a lot of pressure and he was banging out a lot of hard sh- a lot of hard shots and I Swung a left hook, and like everybody see that bar Fidel Bass because it came from the back of the, the back of the hole. It was a big swinging left hook. It was like a punch thrown in desperation, and I just happened to land on target. And I watched like things happen like in slow motion when you're in the ring. I watched him going down, and his legs were like rubber. I mean, they were really rubberized, big thing. And I looked at him and I said, "There's no way is he getting up." There's absolutely no way because like, everything goes by at the speed of light, but like we can you seem to be able to slow it down. And I, if I had been a gambling man, if you'd have bet me ten thousand pound at that moment in time, Maris, there's no chance of this guy getting up because his legs were so so unsteady. And I, you see these things as they as they hit the canvas. Right, and I and I was standing there looking at him, and he was on the canvas, and the count, the, the referee started to count. I said, "There's no way is this guy getting up." And he got up. And I said, Jesus Christ. I said, how did he get? Because I could feel the part of that punch. Like, like, like I'm a pretty heavy hitter. And uh, I caught this guy. Like, like a big swing and left took bang on the money. And I felt the, the, the vibrations got up my arm. And I could feel that. I knew this, this was one of the hardest punches I'd ever thrown. And this yeah. guy recovered from it. And then later on in that room, maybe a half a minute or whatever, I put him down, I caught him with a crack in the right hand. Right hand, And I put yeah. him down again. And I watched his legs again to see what how bad a condition he's in. Because that's you look, you look at their legs to see how their legs react, react with you as they're going down. And when, and when they're trying to get up, and I said, there's no way it's this guy getting up from that. And he got up. <laughs> yeah, and he actually broke my arm. <laughs> he's like, Jesus Christ, almighty, what do I have to do? Yeah, nail him to the floor, guy? yeah. And it was a very, very, very uh, brutal fight, and it was, uh, it was, it was, it was thirteen rounds or twelve and a half rounds of brutality. What happened was, it was my first, my first uh, 
I'd never went over nine rounds, I didn't think, at this stage. Couple of tens, I, I think. Couple of tens. And, 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 and I didn't know how to pace myself. In the 13th round, I came out and I was exhausted. But it wasn't the punch and power that... He put me down in the 13th round, but it wasn't the power of the punch. It was just pure exhaustion. That's awesome. what beat me that day. I, I was exhausted. I mean, it was a really brutal 12 rounds. And then we had to go down to the 13th round, and I just... My tight was empty completely. Yeah. Because... He could have pushed you over at the end. Yeah, you're just uh, you're done. Yeah. Enough. And after those after those hard absorbing rounds from the first round to the tenth round, I mean that was a war. I think I wasn't even the only time I was sucking in there was when I was in the corner in the minute break. Whereas if I had if I had been this may be my own fault. What you do is during the course of the rounds when you're fighting, you know you're filling your lungs up the whole way through and every round, which I wasn't doing that. Then that expands your lungs and you can go for that wee bit longer. But I was, I mean, I was green in those days. You know, I didn't mm. really know. And uh, and uh, but it was an experience. I I think that, that, that and uh, running out of gas, like thirteen rounds, like twelve rounds is a long hard battle. But seeing that third, I I think I fought the last thirteen round fight in Ireland and in Britain. I'm really certain I did. Yeah. But uh, but if I had been twelve rounds, I would have won. But at that stage in my career, I don't think I was ready, you know, uh, to be a world champion at that stage. I mean, after it was only my 14th fight, I don't think it was, I think it was a blessing in, in disguise. But what I learned from my two fights with Fidel Bassa was was immense. I mean, I learned so much from those from those two world title fights and improved my boxing. Uh, like, I'm sure tenfold made me a better fighter and then. All around and give me a wee bit more confidence and stuff. And uh, but I just don't think I think when when you're born in life, things are mapped out for you. When you take your first breath and uh, your life's mapped out for you. And I just think there's a real good reason why I didn't win the uh, my first world, world title because I probably would have lost at my first defense. Yeah, you know what I mean. I guess the same guy because what world champions do is whenever you're making a voluntary defense, because I was a voluntary defense, uh, you're right into the contract that. Uh, in the event of the world champion losing that his first defence or maybe his first two defences are against the new champion you know if yeah, he so you would have been, and you would have had to rematch Fidel Bassa which you ultimately did the following year 1988 lost yeah. that one to a unanimous decision and then considered retirement which brings us back to where we started uh, you're at this stage now 15 months out of the ring yeah. and your manager Barney Eastwood kind of pulls a little bit of a fast one on Mickey Duff his great fe- friend and probably rival and kind of says, oh, Macaulay wants, you know, a little cash out job. So it's June 7th, 1989. And uh, you're in your head, you're probably thinking it's all about being resilient. Uh, something we do on Rocky Road Rewind, we kind of bring people back to the time. So the, the movies released that month were, uh, were pretty good ones, actually. Batman, Ghostbusters 2, Karate Kid 3, as well as Dead Poet Society and Do the Right Thing. Not sure if you've seen any of those ones, Dave Boy. No. <laughs> in the chair. You, you haven't seen any of those movies? What are they again? So you got Batman. No. Fair enough. Fair enough on that one. Ghostbusters 2 and Karate Kid 3. Dead Poets Society. No. Do the right thing, Spike Lee. No. Fair play. Zero from five. That's good. Those days days you can watch them very little TV. Like, I mean, you train twice, sometimes three times a day. And the last thing we come in at night time, I always would have been at around five o'clock at night. Uh, You have your, your, your tea. You sit down. 
you maybe watch the news and you have a young family, so therefore watching TV wasn't a big thing. And I watch more TV than what I did. <laughs> yeah, like, us, but, uh, like us all, in the, in the charts, the number one uh, album and song came from Jason Donovan. So uh, great, great memorable days there. In sports news that month, Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson admits using steroids the previous year at the Olympic Games. Curtis Strange wins back-to-back US Opens. And Jack Charlton's Ireland beat Hungary 2-0 en route to the World Cup in Italy the following season, or the following summer. Uh, the Tiananmen Square, only four days out from your fight, the Tiananmen Square massacre takes place in Beijing uh, with unofficial figures placing the death toll at a 1,000. And uh, on the day of your fight, Dave, boy, this is a good one I saw today. Uh, for one second, the time was 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, which is pretty cool. On the day of my fight? On the day of your fight. So at 23 minutes past one and 45 seconds on the 6th of the 7th, 89. So that was... Uh, Jesus. <laughs> so it was, uh, I was going to put a corny little link in. You were the right man in the right place on your third, on your third world title challenge. And it was against Duke McKenzie, a good, good English fighter. You went to his hometown and you had to take him on. Yeah, well, the thing is... Duke went on to win World Titles, I think, at two or th- three different weights, counting mm-hmm. uh, uh, flyweight, bantamweight, I think, and featherweight. Like, like Duke was good. There's no doubt about it. He was he was very good. But because of his style that he had, and and me and him being as tall as me, like his style suited me. Because normally I'm not tall. I'm five foot seven and a half. I'm the smallest Macaulay I think ever born. All my family are my father six foot two, sixteen and a half stone. My brothers are all big. All my aunts, uncles, my aunts, they're all big people apart from me. I'm their aunt of the family. But uh, McKen- I was told for, for, for a flyweight, and Mackenzie was told for a flyweight. And, and uh, like he couldn't come to terms with my style and my height, whereas I could adapt to his, because all the guys I sparred in the gym, because I didn't spar flyweights or weights, I was sparring featherweights, because when I was sparring flyweights or weights. I'm not bumming or blowing. They didn't last too long because our, our, in our gym, the spars were wars every day. And I mean, it was a, it was a killing session every day. And I, my sparring partners who were the same weight as me, like uh, flyweights or, or bantamweights, didn't last. So I had to fight. I had to spar featherweights. Like I sparred McGuigan very regularly. And his sparring partners very regularly. And they all, apart from McGuigan, all his sparring partners would have been taller than me or, or you know my height, and I, I was used to fighting guys and sparring guys who are who are tall. But when you're fighting shorter guys, I mean you're punching down all the time, and you're losing a lot of your power because you're hitting down. Mm. Whereas you're fighting guys that's your height or maybe taller than you, you can get a, good, a real good crack at them. You know, a, a real good swing for want of a better word. Whereas, but when they're small or smaller, makes things more difficult, and you and your punching power is just not as as uh, effective. Because you're punching down, as what it would be if you're fighting somebody you you know height. The size, the size, how you handle the size compared to how Mackenzie handled the size is something that's remarked upon quite early by Harry Carpenter, who's commentating. He says this this is perfect for Macaulay, but Mackenzie doesn't seem to know what to do. And I know what you mean. You were small, but you did you did look you both both of you looked quite big in your flyweight fights. You'd often fight against guys who were five foot tall, five foot two. Well. Maybe about five. Normally, when you're fighting flyers, and apart from Baby Jake and Lala, that flyers were around <laughs> five, three, five, four, five. I mean, they fighting Baby Jake. That was a nightmare. Yeah. 
find him. I, 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 like before I knew who he was, when I was told his name, I didn't know, I, I knew nothing about him, but I just looked at his record. And it was Paddy Byrne made the match. Mr. Paddy, I said, why did you bring somebody? I said, look at his knockout ratio. I think, and at this stage, I hadn't seen how, how tall he was. Or I just looked at, looked at his record. I said, why are you bringing me with somebody in a voluntary defence whose knockout ratio was far, far higher than mine? I said, why, why would you do that? But then when I fought him, like, when I came across and we said, and when I seen the sign, I was like, Jesus Christ, I still had the size of this guy. Yeah. I said, like, he's, I I think he's four foot 11. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I said, how the hell am I? Like, and, he, and he'd get long arms. And which meant his head was, as, uh, he, he, he was particularly from, like, from head to body you know, with his arms, because his arms were pretty long. He's like, how the hell am I going to get a good clean shot at this guy? And it took me 10 rounds to break him down because most of the punches I was hitting hitting him, like really good solid pumps were, were, were uh, all being absorbed by his arms. But I was doing him so hard, he was, big, he was barely to feel the impact even through his arms. But the fact was, I couldn't really get a real good crack at him. And then in the 10th round, I seen that he made a gap in his gloves and I, I can't remember if it was a right hand or a left hook. I seen a gap in between his gloves where my glove could fit in between. You know, could, could get in between because normally I couldn't because his gloves are so tight together. I couldn't get a real good crack at him. Bang! There's a target. Well, I got one real good crack at him in the tenth round, and that was the, the, the punch that knocked him out. Like, yeah, you know it didn't take. It didn't take you long to though to catch up with Duke McKenzie in the first round, like you said at the beginning of the show, you hit him with a left hook to the body, and you heard the, you kind of heard him expel oh. some noise, and you said, "I heard him, I heard him." He, he went, "Oh my God, there he see, and here's me tease at like, and I didn't realize at this stage that that the punch that that uh, uh, you know uh, land on target exactly, but what he sh- his biggest mistake was making that noise, like. Whenever you're hit or whenever you're hurt, if ever I'm, I've caught with a good body shot, the, the last thing you want to do is go, oh, my God, there's soon as your point knows right away. <laughs> how, do you, how do you stop yourself? Is it just practice? You just or have something? to learn. You just yeah. like, I've, I've been caught really, I mean, really good body shots. They hurt me. And you feel the pain going through your whole body. Like, yeah. and You just have to absorb it and go on. And I've been caught some cracking right hands. And because I don't show that I have been hurt, they haven't realized I've been hurt. And if I had realised, I mean, if I had shown any any weakness at that stage, they'd be going to be like a like a ton of bricks. But the fact they don't show any emotion or show any pain, they don't know. Whereas there's some fighters that show that they have been hurt, or just they give off some expression, or they give off there's a telltale sign, and then you're on them like a flag. Yeah. But the, the, the thing is, when you are hurt, I've been I've seen me being being hit with cracking right hands and seeing big flashes of light. And as we stars that you see in the in the, in the cartoons, and TV, that's a fact of life. But they haven't seen how how badly they have hurt me. And if they had a, a if they had a followed up with an oar punch, which they could have done, they would have knocked me out probably or put me down. But because I I didn't show any pain or didn't show that that I had been hurt, they didn't realise the damage that they had done. Because if they had realised the damage that they had done. It'd be all me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, so you had a good poker face in in those yeah. terms. But I suppose that's what you need. You, you did have a tell though in in terms of just falling down on the canvas. <laughs> you, you I went think, down. I, I think on my twenty, I twenty three, my twenty three fights, I was down twenty three times. Incredible. <laughs> and Incredible. Up, up twenty two. But I mean, people just say to me, oh, "Did that punch hurt you?" Maybe. Well, what do you think? 
This has been down, didn't it? Because if he yeah. moved down, it hurt you. Yeah, sure enough. You didn't really have that many danger moments against McKenzie. He came on strong a couple of times, but like for at the third time of asking, it really couldn't have gone any better. Uh, McKenzie complained after it said, I clearly underestimated him given he'd been on the deck. This is a recent interview he gave uh, to Hannibal Boxing. Given the fact he'd been on the deck 17 times prior to me fighting him, three weeks before the fight, I was in Barbados as my brother's best man in the heat. He, you know, he was losing weight because he was in the heat and he was doing a bit of training, but he was kind of drinking and having a good time. Um, he said the defeat came as a relief. Making eight stone was the bane of his life. But then in a follow-up interview with the Ring magazine, he did say, uh, he did say he was hurt and he thought, fuck, the championship is gone in the first round, that left hook that you're talking about. And for the next 11 rounds, I thought he went he went into survival mode and he knew that you'd, you know, you'd lived it, slept it, walked it, talked it and walked away with the championship. So he's got nothing but admiration. That was very, very nice of me. But Duke, uh, Duke's uh, style of boxing suited me down to the ground. It couldn't have come, you know, at a better time for me. Uh, I'm not saying we knew that we had a beaten them, that we beat them okay, but we had a really good idea that I had a real, real good chance of winning the, the IBF World Championship. Mm. I'm not saying, I think Jip's a puncher, he could punch, but he never once hurt me, not once during the whole fight. And I just thought, after the fight was over, I just thought, like, I mean, this guy, he, he has a few knockouts in, 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 his, uh, in his record and stuff. And I just couldn't understand how he didn't hurt me. You know? But uh, he was a good, solid puncher. But I just thought he just, his record, in my opinion, just didn't live up to the, you know, the part his record suggests that he had. Because he, he, he didn't want to. I mean, I've been, I can take a good punch. I, I will go down, yes, but I've got great powers of, of recovery. And I'm, I'm lucky in that respect. But uh, Mackenzie, I, I mean, I didn't once see a flash of light, which which sometimes do. Mm. And, uh, it doesn't put you down, but you see a guy hit a good a good shot. There's a flash of light. Now one more punch would put, would put you down. But I've seen flashes of lights. I've seen stars, but it's just not a hard enough punch to, to knock you on your ass. But Mackenzie didn't. Maybe he just didn't catch me with a good punch the whole way through the the, the, the twelve rounds. But not once did he hurt me, and I knew. That I was hurting him quite often uh, as the fight progressed. I think I hurt him with, with right hands and left hooks. And they weren't knockout punches, but they were punches where uh, it was letting him know that if he walks onto one, like a real good one, he'll know that, that there's a real good chance he'll get knocked out. And this was going through his mind the whole way through the fight. Because I had hurt him I think, with, a, with a body punch, but I, 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 I knew punches that I'd caught him with that I'd also hurt him. I mean, they weren't knockout punches, but they were, they were solid punches. And he knew that they weren't uh, they weren't my best shots that I, I was catching him with. He knew there was, there was harder punches to come. But I, I didn't I didn't catch him with another real good, solid knockout punch after that. The only time I was in that first round, there was an opening, and I landed that left hook to the body. And uh, from, that, from, from then on in, he went into survival mode which means it was hands up, guard up. And I needed a tin opener to, like, to unlock him. But uh, that's how good his defence was. I was getting through with some points, don't get me wrong, but I wasn't getting through with any one-point knockouts because he was so well covered up. I was getting through with weak things in between gloves. Where, you know, 
was able to score points, but I wasn't able to score another real good knockout. I, and I knew he was feeling the power of my shots. Even the ones were hitting him on the arms, the ones were hitting him on the gloves, the ones were hitting him on the shoulders. He knew there was a, he knew there was power there, and that's why he was in the survival mode. And he didn't. And uh, maybe it was good for me because maybe if he had a fought the fight that he normally would fight, it may have been a different fight entirely. You, know? you knew you had the fight won from eight nine rounds. Well, it got to the stage. Uh, provided there's no, there was no skull duggery going on. As you know, a, a box was full of all that nonsense where <laughs> no. fighters, fighters have won 11 rounds out of 12 and they've lost in a split decision. So that was going through the back of my mind all the time because he was, he, was, he was Britain's blue-eyed boy. He was, he was the next big thing. He was being like, Harry Carter and BBC, they were all this, this guy, McKenzie, but he was the number one. He was going on to do yeah. great things. So here's me. I could be fighting the establishment here also. And I just thought to myself, the only real sure way of me winning this without any doubt is a knockout. But it got the stage, get into the to, to the latter rounds of that fight. He was so far behind in points in any normal thinking judges' cards that he needed a knockout for a draw. And I was always worried about because of the he was held in such high regard. He was Britain's blue-eyed boy in boxing, and he was being heralded for great things. There maybe could be some uh, underlying uh, things going on here. But luckily enough, not on this there, wasn't, there wasn't, you know. Yeah, and uh, like he, he'd been he'd been groomed to succeed, kind of like Charlie Magri and other big names as well. Yeah. And, and just like that, you, this win took place one week after Barry McGuigan's final fight against Jim McDonald. And now you had your world title to defend. So, uh, and which he did successfully five times, creating a new record. And we will get to that in the future on, on another episode. But until then, Dave Boy McCauley, thanks so much for joining us on the Rocky Road Rewind. Lovely, Kevin. Thanks here for you, Sue.